It's Monday, September 13th, and you've got Oz in your ears. Well, hi there. This is David Osmond, again on the road for Radio Free Oz, and we are here on the steps of the Capitol Building for the unveiling of designer Yves Saint-Stoul's Midterm Modern fashion line. Uh, hi, Eve. Welcome to Washington, D.C. Well, merci, David, and hello to you, too. Yes. You know, this is a very exciting time. Upheaval is in the air. Uh-huh. The Republicans are beginning to test blood. And as you know, many of them live entirely on blood. So for them, this is a very heady time. Oh, yes. Well, it's a beheading time, too, <laughs> I think, is uh, probably what they have in mind. Uh, so are you designing for these uh, right-wingers, these hordes of right-wingers that are kind of descending on this town? No, David. Uh, no? No. These boobo they are cut from another cloth, and it is a shot I cannot float. Uh-huh. But I have put together a line of accessories that will uh-huh. allow us to suffer through the next two years. And by that you must mean uh, some of this unusual jewelry. Uh, yes, there. the Bible uh-huh. belt. Uh, uh-huh. On both sides of the buckle you see are the lithium LEDs with continual readouts of Old and New Testament passages. Uh, wait, wait, wait. Let me try to follow this. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings, uh, uh, thunders, and voices. Uh-huh. That's uh, from uh, the Revelations? Is I that think it is. Right. So look inside. Uh-huh. Now look there into the mirrored buckles surrounded by the clusters of emeralds and sardine uh, stones. What do you see? Uh, yeah. oh, oh, my gosh. <laughs> For just a second there, I thought I... I saw myself as Jesus. Well, everyone does, David. It's a holographic trick. But for the fundamentalists, a great self-esteem builder. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure it is. Well, what about the, the watch? Oh, much more than a watch. It uh-huh. is a GOP Gadar early warning system. It glows pink and plays the village people Ooh. if any of the Republicans in the room are still in the closet. Oh. I had Ken Melman tagged a month before he came out. Oh, that's a very clever item. Okay, now, now this, what is this? A... Flimsy. It's a, a, a body suit. What, it's what's an ultra-thin, second-skin dyed the very hue of John Baymer's suntan. Oh. Slip it on and fit right in with the other Georgetown barflies toasting their skyrocketing, sordid careers. You, huh? can, you can have a, an all-over tan and, 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 a, and, a, and a bespoke suit sort yeah. of at the same time. Now, David, yeah. I know you're going okay. to that tea party over at C Street Frat House. Oh, yes. You'll need some protection. Uh, I, I Try on so. this faux George Washington tricolor radio hat with antenna wheel. All right, let me, it oh. blocks all signals from Fox, Rush Limbaugh, and Glenn Beck, and surreptitiously lets you listen to Rachel Maddow while these boobs are trying to fill your head with their useless natter. Let me see now. Uh, well, so uh, usually I get silence from yeah. these things, but oh, there she, she is. is. Yeah, She's funny, yeah, huh? She is. She's nice boobs. No, no, well, no, I, I must go. A client yes, of mine is attending an affair moment. where Sarah Palin will be appearing. That's and too bad. She wants to keep her distance, yeah. so. No problem. Should be wearing my new scent, KTC. KTC. It KTC? mimics Katie Couric's pheromones. It totally terrorizes Mama Grizzlies and leaves them speechless. <laughs> that must be what worked on Jan Brewer. Au revoir. <laughs> so long. Oh, yes. RadioFreeOz.com. Moving on towards our 100th show, probably oh. in October. Oh, 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 my goodness. Now, David, it's a time shift world on the web. We're recording this on the, the day before 9-11, and it's going to appear on the Monday afterwards. So, for example, we don't know if that wingnut in Florida actually is going to go ahead and burn the Korans. Well, you know, I'm listening to the NPR news at every hour break to find out whether he is going to burn the Koran. This is what occurred to me. You know, what, what? what is burning, you know, burning things, flag burning, big, big discussion about flag burning. Yeah, what does it mean? Crazy to a, hippies burned flags. Right? Does the idiot think that he's going to burn all the Korans and this is just the beginning and then there won't be any more? Well, it's got to be, it's got to be symbolic. Right. Now, he could throw shoes at the Koran. Yeah, the way you they know. threw shoes at what Bush at or Bush, whatever yeah. and catch them. Yeah. People could get, he could throw shoes at the Quran. He could bring dogs near it because they're considered unclean. All right, that he, would be he terrible. Could, he could do, but but burning. Wait, no, he yes. could tear pages out of it and use it as tails for kites. Remember, they made uh, you can't fly kites in Taliban-controlled right. areas because the tails could be pages from the Quran. So he could do that. That a, a, a Quran tail kite. 
contest in Gainesville would be just so surreal. Can't you imagine how soaring those kite tails oh, would be? Yeah, and, and, and the, as the crime goes the, by, you try to read it. You know. Right, uh, so, no. Well, no, but but burning, burning is the point. Let's here. go back burning to burning the burning the Bible, burning the Quran, burning the flag, burning, burning witches. Not that that goes a step further. Let's I don't just talk know about that it goes a step further. Maybe not. Maybe. I think the symbolism goes all the way back to, and I think that this the wingnut in Florida is the same Jones Smith, whatever his name is. Jones, I think. Jones. He's, he's the same thing. By burning the Koran, it's like burning a, a witch. You don't burn all witches, but you get that one. Yeah, it's and gone. You, and it's gone, then. It's ashes. It's that, that one witch is gone. So I think this goes, you know, this is like somewhere in the 16th century or something we're talking here. No, it's also there's a supply and demand situation. When the Nazis burned books, they burned any of these books that they found the least bit offensive for, for lots of reasons. The author was Jewish. The, the, the cover's the wrong color. Here, you can't, they're not burning like 150 Korans at once, right? Because they're not going to spend the money to do it. They could go out and they could mail order 150 Korans from the from Amazon and burn them all. But oh no, he's a cheapskate, man. Remember, he's also there's a fringe of corruption around this guy, you know. So burning one Koran. But here's the thing that gets me. You're okay. quite right. It, okay. It's symbolic, but this one's gone. Nobody's going to read this one. Okay. Here's the thing that really bothers me, okay? I, of course, don't believe that just because the president or the head of our troops tells us not to do something, we shouldn't do it, obviously. But here's Petraeus. Forget the president and Sarah Palin, who have also said, don't burn it. Petraeus, who's head of our troops. Now, this guy, is, this guy Jones, is burning it because this is the word of the devil, and we're, 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 we're at war with these people. And he says that, right? So there's a crusade going on. Okay? Yep. He's going to burn the book of the people who come at us in this crusade. All right? Now, they had trouble burning all the little Mao books had we gone to war with the Chinese. Well, some books burn more easily, easily than, than others. But here's the thing. The man who is in charge of our troops in this crusade says to him, don't do it. It puts us at risk. It risks the very troops that are running this crusade against this spiritual enemy that you so abhor. And he doesn't care. So he's not, a, in quotes, a patriot. He's not even a true crusader. He's not even a true wingnut Christian. This man is an Elmer Gantry. Yeah, this, yeah. That's what that's he good. is, man. He is a pure out-and-out out huckster. What I would have done if I'd been the government guy yeah. is call a local sheriff, yeah. you know, and said, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm from the FBI, yes. and I want you yeah. to know, tell this guy that the FBI will be by, and we will pick him up for a hate crime, and he will do 30 years. Just well, give him a warning, now, because he's in big trouble. Now, the FBI's already contacted him. The yeah. FBI's been around it. Yeah, it's not, a hate. It's not a hate crime. What do you mean it's it, not it, a hate crime? It's not, a, not as hate crimes. It isn't a hate crime. I mean, if I decide if to- If he throws his shoe at it, would it be a hate crime? Look, if, if, <laughs> I, if, I, burn, if I burn a book by a one of those various uh, people who write such poor trash, right? You know, trash writing. If I burn a Sidney Sheldon book, it's not a hate crime, even though I really hate his work. <laughs> Clive Cussler, uh, here yeah, I come. Here yeah. I come. Cussler, it's just too long. It's, you know, I've had it, right? No, so, no okay, that's not a hate crime. So, so, and the fire department tried saying, you know, you can't do this because it's against the fire laws. Well, it really isn't. He's going to do a safe, controlled burn. <laughs> You know, you know. For example, it should say like you go by Gainesville says no Koran burning today, right? Uh, and this red, but uh, it rains the next day. Koran burning, okay, yeah, okay. Then. It's a real mm -hmm. issue. But the thing that gets me is okay. that he doesn't care. He doesn't care. No, he really doesn't care. And and he's not alone. There are people who feel that. Christ is talking in their ears like George Bush, and that once God talks to them, everything they do is for the good, for the God. It's inerrant. He cannot be stopped. It's really scary. I'm terrified. The coward's war goes on and on and on. This from Newsweek. International interest in events in Pakistan may have shifted to the humanitarian crisis caused by floods and a fresh wave of terrorist bombings. But three reported attacks with drone-borne missiles last weekend serve as a reminder that an intense secret U.S. air campaign is continuing against alleged terrorist targets in the country's tribal regions. Notice the word alleged. Alleged terrorists. Oh my, that's like being 1 16th Jewish in Nazi Germany or something like it. 
The Voice of America's website quoted Pakistani officials saying that three suspected attacks with missiles from U.S.-operated drones killed at least 15 people in the North Waziristan region along Pakistan's border with Afghanistan. And I ask you, by the way, what threat to the American homeland is 15 people in Waziristan? According to this report, the first attack in a village called Dunde Darpaikel was aimed at a compound used by a member of the Haqqani Network, an Afghan Taliban group that for some time has been operating mainly from the Pakistani side of the border. Hey, talk about blowback? Haqqani? This is the group of mercenaries run by the son whose father was completely supported by the CIA during the time when we stuck our thumb up the ass of the Soviets for being in Afghanistan. And guess what? Take out your thumb and we're there now. In another of the latest incidents, a drone-borne missile reportedly killed four militants. I love it. Ter- What's the difference between a militant, a terrorist, and an insurgent, right? I, you know, I don't know. During World War II, they had those outlines of the silhouettes of airplanes so you could look up at the sky and say, oh, that's a kamikaze and a, that's a Piper Cub. But what does a silhouette of a militant and an insurgent and a terrorist look like? Oh, my. Anyway, these drone-borne missiles, the coward's way, the joystick jockeys, uh, killed four militants who were riding in a vehicle near a town called Datakel. A third missile struck near Miran Shah, a major town in North Waziristan, also allegedly killing four militants. Hey, how does it feel to be allegedly killed? And, And who marked these people as insurgents? Memories of the Phoenix program in Vietnam come to mind when we killed so-called Vietcom sympathizers on the word of somebody in a village. It was a great way of getting rid of somebody who owed you money uh, or whose position you wanted to take over or whose wife you lusted after. Now, I don't think the joystick jockeys in Las Vegas who are sending these hellfire missiles up the asses of these alleged militants are lusting after their wives. I think they're getting some other kind of kick out of it. U.S. officials say the drone campaign against suspected terrorist encampments in Pakistani tribal areas has proceeded at a relatively steady pace despite the country's internal upheavals. Yeah, they lose 20% of their arable land. They're in complete crisis, and we're droning them. And that the three drone strikes represent a steady continuation of the campaign rather than an intensification of the American-backed secret war. Oh, I just love secret wars. Officials said the targets of the latest drone strikes are believed, believed, believed by who and to what end, believed to have included both foreign fighters. Oh, there's a fourth silhouette. We got militants, insurgents, terrorists, and foreign fighters, and they're affiliated with Al-Qaeda or the Taliban and native Pakistani or Afghan fighters. U.S. policymakers say they believe the recent wave of bombings attributed to the Pakistani Taliban demonstrates why U.S. forces and those allies in the Pakistani government who are not otherwise beleaguered cannot afford to let up pressure, even in times of great crisis on suspected militant encampments. The army is becoming boosters for drones. Keep them coming, they say. We need the paychecks. The drones are running the CIA. They're running the DOD. Man, we are in deep doo-doo. A U.S. official familiar with recent events noted, You're seeing the continuation of a long, precise campaign to erode the ability of terrorists to operate in the tribal areas. Erosion. Attrition. Hearts and minds. It's a nightmare. That includes attack planners, facilitators, and fighters. It's a reminder that Al-Qaeda and its violent allies may be bleeding, but they're still out there and they're still very dangerous. So, it's a war of erosion. Now, good old attrition where we trade high-tech unmanned bombs for an endless flow of insurgents. (laughs) Well, many of those insurgents, we find out, have been turned into Taliban because of the very drone strikes. We are so fucked. Hello. Hello. We're We're glad glad you you made it. it. Welcome Welcome to to the future. In an unofficial start to the last stretch of the 2010 campaign season, top officials throughout the Democratic Party upped the rhetoric on spotlighting the crazier characters and policy positions that could land in Congress with GOP gains. 
No one, however, brought as much gusto to the pitch as Governor Ed Rendell. Introducing DNC Chairman Tim Kaine at the University of Pennsylvania, the retiring Pennsylvania Democrat, known for his oratorical flair, warned about the government being taken over by wackos. Now, this is my man. He called some of the more colorful characters in the Republican Party Fruit Loops. He derided House Minority Leader John Boehmer as the tan guy and said that some of the GOP's positions are flat-out crazy, including flat-earth crazy, probably amongst some of the more totally out to lunch. I'm telling you, Randall said, if I'm an independent voter and representative of Patrick Murphy's district, sure, I'm worried about the deficit, but I sure as heck I'm worried about people who want to do away with the 14th Amendment. I'm sure as heck worried about people who don't think the president was born in the United States of America. I sure as heck am worried about people who think that workers are staying home because of unemployment benefits. They are nuts. They are flat out crazy. We are going to turn the reins of Congress over to these people who are more and more dominated by the wacko right, he added. In all, however, this appears to be the last push Democrats will make as the election looms. The final resort to motivate voters rests in pointing out how much worse a change of power could be. Rendell himself hinted as much when he noted at the beginning of the remarks that if the Democratic Party can bridge the enthusiasm gap, we can win. Build that bridge at every bridge party. Build that bridge. I have Michael Newman on the phone. Uh, He's a professor of philosophy at Trent University in Ontario, Canada, and the author of What's Left, The Rule of Law and the Case Against Israel. And uh, it's a pleasure to have you here. Uh, Michael, welcome to Radio Free Oz. Thanks for having me. And this is the Jewish New Year system, system really, (laughs) season. Maybe it is a system. And uh, I want to ask you a general question. Uh, What... What prospects do you see for any kind of reconciliation between Israel and the Palestinians in the next year? Where do you think America is going to fit in? Just give me an overview and, 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 and let's go from there, okay? Well, in few words, reconciliation, you've got to be kidding. That's not going to happen. Uh, America's role, practically nothing. America's is way too timid, Obama's way too timid, and the American Congress, which is what Obama's worried about, is, I think, pretty far behind the American people in its attitudes toward Israel. Uh, the, the American people don't seem to idolize Israel the way the American Congress does. Now, that said, I'm not that pessimistic about the next year, but I don't think that it's going to come from negotiations. I don't think it's going to come from uh, political agitation, and I don't think it's going to come from the United States. I think it's going to come, uh, if there's any positive change, from Israel realizing that it can't go on the way it's going on. And by that I mean that it's going to see, not now, not next year, not the year after, but somewhere on the horizon, uh, a serious military threat. I mean, as it is right now, Israel has fought for its security for 60 years, and where is it? Not a square inch of its territory is uh, free from exposure to rockets from Lebanon, Turkey's turning against it, Syria and Turkey are reconciling, and basically everybody in the region's getting fed up with Israel. My hope is that the Israelis will be like the South Africans who saw the writing on the wall many years before there was any kind of military threat and decided to throw in the towel. Uh, something similar happened in Algeria. That may that may happen. Reconciliation, American pressure, uh, I can't take it seriously. Well, when you, when you, when you talk about the, uh, using the format uh, or the module of South Africa, basically a state in which uh, the majority of the population were oppressed by, by a minority who indeed, as you say, threw in the towel and created a free state, which is now basically an, you know, an African state. Um, it's, not, it's not working 100%, but there it is. Is it possible for us to think of an Israeli one-state solution 
in which uh, uh, it no longer is a Jewish state, but is a state called, you know, Israel, that, that uh, in which all people are given the same rights and the same citizenship? Is that a possible solution? Nope. Uh, I don't think there's the slightest chance of that. Uh, I think that everything Israel is and stands for is as a Jewish state. If they're not going to go for leaving the occupied territories, <clears throat> they're certainly not going to go for a single state. For them, that would be giving up the whole thing. Uh-huh. And I think the Poles in Israel would uh, back me up on that. Well, uh, then what is the alternative? Is the two-state solution a true alternative? Uh, yeah. I, I, you know, I don't understand what complications uh, people see in this except the ones that people have deliberately introduced. As far as I'm concerned, the whole kerfuffle about negotiations is incomprehensible. Nobody needs any negotiations. All Israel has to do is pull out, move its troops behind the 1967 borders, and the settlers uh, can either come running after or they can stay and and await whatever fate uh, they're going to be dealt with. Uh, That's that's the solution, I see. It seems simple. You know, I agree. I mean, it it, it, 67 borders. Okay, you know, you've got a, a second state which is radically poor. I don't know if they have... Uh, necessary enough access to water, etc. But those are all situations that can be dealt with, right? That's all negotiable and workable. What's, Absolutely. What, what is keeping the two-state solution from happening, Michael? Well, this is what pisses me off so badly. Nothing much. I, I think that all the, the suffering and horror that's going on right now is over nothing so much as some cheap real estate. Mm -hmm. I I think too many Israelis have, you know, got nice condos in the occupied territories. Uh, Too many American sons of bitches have gone over there and they they have their settlements with their their swimming pools and their lawns uh, made out of Palestinian uh, soil and water. And uh, none of this has anything to do with Israel's survival or Jewish survival or anything of the kind. This is just people being spoiled and pig-headed and being uh, indulged in their childish behavior by uh, the United States Congress and the whole sort of myth of... uh, the, 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 of, of you know, Jewish oppression as something uh, relevant and, and contemporary today. And there are no substantive issues. Let me ask you I this mean, then. You know, I, yeah. I expect people to be sons of bitches in their own interest, but this <laughs> isn't even in Israel's interest. Well, let me ask you this then. Let us say, for example, that the... <clears throat> that the two-state solution was brought about and America supported it. Would this do a lot to ameliorate the whole anti-American feeling amongst the uh, ra- amongst radical Islam around the world? Would it affect the world jihad, the so-called war on terror, which I find terribly suspect? Uh, yeah. Uh, to be honest, I, I don't know. That, 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 I think, is, is the right answer here. It, it's an awfully big question because you've got uh, a great uh, variety within the Middle Eastern states around there, and it's not clear to me what the deep grievances are. You know, I, I'm not one of these guys who on uh, September 12th, uh, 2001 suddenly became an expert in Islam in the Middle East. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I think it, it's pretty complicated. What I do think is that it, it will definitely help America. And the reason I think it'll help America is that right now, I think the world views America as stupid and crazy. Why? Well, because it's acting stupid and crazy. That's a good and, reason. Yeah. yeah. The way that shows up the most is the the U.S. backing Israel when this does obviously great damage to America's reputation and, and when Israel is useless. 
in, 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 in the first Gulf War, in 1990, Syria fought on the side of the U.S. Well, Israel had to sit back and be protected. I know. It's a, very, it's a very complicated situation. And you know what? We're going to continue this conversation uh, in, 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 this, in the second of our interviews, uh, which will be coming up immediately uh, on the site. Uh, I'd like to thank you very much, Michael, for being with us, and I look forward to talking with you again. And uh, is there a website that people can go up to to, to contact you or to, take a look, or to take a look at your work or become f- more familiar with your thinking? Uh, yeah, uh, I'm on Tripod, so it's uh, M Newman, M N E U M A N N dot Tripod dot com, and then uh, M N Israel H T M. I've got most of my stuff on, on Israel on that page. Uh, okay, good. We'll we'll publish it. Thank you very much, Michael Newman. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. Hey, uh, if you have a moment, uh, we'd love for you to join us on Twitter. This is a a whole new social network outreach that we're getting into. uh, And I think Twitter is is a really good way for people to meet each other and to know Oz and to spread Oz. Just go to www.twitter.com slash Oz Network and click on the follow button. And we'll be making some announcements on Twitter soon and you won't want to miss them. Okay, well, even if you do want to miss them, go up because that's your choice. This is The Great Divergence by uh, Timothy Nash, and it's off Slate. In 1915, a statistician at the University of Wisconsin named Wilford I. King published The Wealth and Income of the People of the United States, the most comprehensive study of its kind to date. The United States was displacing Great Britain as the world's wealthiest nation. That was when the richest 1% accounted for 18% of the nation's income. That's quite a spread. Today, the richest 1% account for 24% of the nation's income. That is unsustainable. It's, It's a sin. Income inequality in the United States has not worsened steadily since 1915. It dropped a bit in the late teens, then started climbing again in the 1920s, reaching its peak just before the 29 crash. The trend then reversed itself. Income started to become more equal in the 30s and then became dramatically more equal in the 40s. Income distribution remained roughly stable um, through the post-war economic boom of the 50s and 60s, and economic historians have termed this mid-century era the Great Compression. The deep nostalgia for that period felt by the World War II generation, the era of Life magazine, and the bowling league reflects something more than mere sentimentality. Assuming you were white, not of draft age, and Christian, there was probably no better time to belong to America's middle class. The Great Compression ended in the 70s. Wages then stagnated, inflation raged, and by the decade's end, income equality had started to rise. Income inequality grew through the late 1980s, slackened briefly at the end of the 1990s, then resumed with a vengeance in the aughts. Yeah, we're caught in the aughts. The zeros. Looking through the zeros into a bleak future. Unless, of course, we do something about it. In his 2007 book, The Conscience of a Liberal, the Nobel laureate, Princeton economist, and New York Times columnist Paul Krugman labeled the post-1979 epic The Great Divergence. It's generally understood that we live in a time of growing income inequality, said Krugman, but the ordinary person is not really aware of just how big it is. During the 80s and the late 90s, the United States experienced two unprecedentedly long periods of sustained economic growth, the seven fat years, the long boom. Yet from 1980 to 2005, more than 80% of the total increase in America's income went to the top 1%. Economic growth was more sluggish in the aughts, but the decade saw productivity increase by about 20%. One of the reasons that productivity went up, of course, is that they just cut a lot of jobs, made people work harder for less, and from that you get productivity. Yet virtually none of the increase translated into wage growth at middle and lower incomes, an outcome that left many economists scratching their heads. Why don't Americans pay more attention to growing income disparity? One reason may be our enduring belief in social mobility. Yep, economic inequality is less troubling if you live in a country where 
Any child, no matter how humble his or her origins, can grow up to be the president. Yep, in a survey of 27 nations conducted from 1998 to 2001, the country where the highest proportion agreed with the statement people are rewarded for intelligence and skill was, of course, the great old United States. 69% of the people still believe that. But when it comes to real as opposed to imagined social mobility, surveys find less in the United States than in much of what we consider the class-bound old world. France, Germany, Sweden, Denmark, Spain, not to mention some newer nations like Canada and Australia, are all places where your chances of rising from the bottom are better than they are in Horatio Alger's America. We still live with that myth. True to a certain degree, but basically a whole lot more subdued and adumbrated than we're willing to admit. Class pressures in this country keep people down. All my life, says Nash, I've heard Latin America described as a failed society because of its grotesque maldistribution of wealth. Peasants in rags beg for food outside the high walls of opulent villas and so on. But according to the Central Intelligence Agency, income distribution in the United States is more unequal than in Guyana, Nicaragua, and Venezuela, and roughly on par with Uruguay, Argentina, and Ecuador. Put that in your pipe. Income inequality is actually declining in Latin America, even as it continues to increase the United States. Economically speaking, the richest nation on earth is starting to resemble a banana republic. The main difference is that the United States is big enough to maintain geographic distance between the villa dweller and the beggar. Is the middle class doomed to extinction? And shall we soon find the handful of plutocrats, the modern barons of wealth, lined up squarely in opposition to the propertyless masses with no buffer between, uh, uh, between them to lessen the chances of open battle? With the middle class gone and the laborer condemned to remain a lifelong wage earner with no hope of attaining wealth or even a competence in his old age, all the conditions are ripe for a crowning class conflict ending in intensity and bitterness already pictured by the radical followers of Karl Marx. Today, income in the U.S. are more unequal than in Germany, France, the United Kingdom, yet income inequality has barely entered the national political debate. Indeed, evidence from the 2000 and 2004 presidential elections suggests that even mild economic populism was a loser for the Democrats. Yeah, It's true. We still believe that anybody that gets up there and talks about heavily taxing the rich, redistributing income, fairness, all of these issues, is a Maoist, socialist, communist dictator. Just ask the poor dupe dudes in the Tea Party. But income inequality is a topic of huge importance to American society and therefore a subject of large and growing interest to a host of economists, political scientists, and other wonky types. Except for a few libertarian outliers, these experts agree that the country's growing income inequality is deeply worrying. Even Alan Greenspan, the former Federal Reserve Board chairman and one-time Ayn Rand acolyte, has registered concern. He said in 2005, this is not the type of thing which a democratic society, a capitalistic democratic society can accept without addressing. Well, it's time we put that address on that envelope, put out on the stamp, and send it off to whomever can do something about it. I think it's got my name on it. Sweet Charlene McGray, she was pretty as a posy in the springtime. Lighty die. She would twirl around all day, get dizzy, and she'd fall down in a haze. Lighty die. And the country breeze passed slowly as I went to her. Knocked upon her solid wooden door But her father, he just looked at me And said, leave her, I'll call the law So I cut her paw in half with a chainsaw She always had a way of 
giving all the neighbor boys sensations like he died. They would close their eyes and pray that their Christian God would lead them from temptation like he died. But her mama didn't want that girl to grow up and end up with a heathen like myself. She always tried to tell Charlene about my little flaws So I cut her mom in half with a chainsaw Charlene McGray She's all mine There's nothing to divide us Like In a sunny day in May It was time to ask that girl To be my bride Like So I got down on me And took her finger And I said to her Charlene Will you be mine She just kept complaining that I killed her mom and pa So I cut Charlene in half with the chainsaw I got this out of England's Guardian via the Daily Beast. Twelve American soldiers faced charges over a secret kill team that allegedly blew up and shot Afghan civilians at random and collected their fingers as trophies. Wait a minute. Isn't it 2010? Aren't we civilized? Five of the soldiers are charged with murdering three Afghan men who were allegedly killed for sport in separate attacks this year. Seven others are accused of covering up the killings and assaulting a recruit who exposed the murders when he reported other abuses, including members of the unit smoking hashish stolen from civilians. Oh, I can see the right wing now. It was the hashish, see? Assassins, hashish. That's why they're killing. And well, maybe we should smoke some more and kill some more. In one of the most serious accusations of war crimes to emerge from the Afghan conflict, the killings are alleged to have been carried out by members of a striker infantry brigade based in Kandahar province in southern Afghanistan. According to investigators and legal documents, discussion of killing Afghan civilians began after the arrival of Staff Sergeant Calvin Gibbs at forward operating base Ramrod last November. Ah, Ramrod. That's a nice stiff name for a bunch of stiffs going around killing people and collecting their fingers. Nothing feminine about war. It's not operating base lipstick or mascara or, or womb. It's Ramrod. Other soldiers told the Army's Criminal Investigation Command that Gibbs boasted of the things he got away with while serving in Iraq and said how easy it would be to toss a grenade at someone and kill them. One soldier said he believed Gibbs was feeling out the platoon. Investigators said Gibbs, 25, hatched a plan with another soldier, Jerry Morlock, 22. Morlock is... Morlock's a demon, and other members of the unit to form a kill team. While on patrol over the following months, they allegedly killed at least three Afghan civilians. According to the charge sheet, the first target was Gul Mudin, who was killed by by means of throwing a fragmentary grenade at him and shooting him with a rifle when the patrol entered the village of La Mohammed Calais in January. Oh boy, we certainly are pulling up their hearts and minds. We got him where we want him. Morlock and another soldier, Andrew Holmes, were on guard at the edge of a poppy field when Mudin emerged and stopped on the other side of the wall from the soldiers, probably taking a leak. 
Gibbs allegedly handed Morlock a grenade, who armed it and dropped it over the wall next to the Afghan and dived for cover. Holmes, 19, then allegedly fired over the wall. American soldiers. Later in the day, Morlock is alleged to have told Holmes that the killing was for fun and threatened him if he told anyone. The second victim, Marak Agha, was shot and killed the following month. Gibbs is alleged to have shot him and placed a Kalishnikov next to the body to justify the killing. Kind of like dropping a weapon on someone in New York City. In May, Mullah Adadahad was killed after being shot and attacked with a grenade. The Army Times reported that at least one of the soldiers collected the fingers of the victims as souvenirs and that some of them posed for photographs with the bodies. Now, there have always been atrocities committed with war. War is an atrocity in a sense. And in World War II, we, we have stories of American soldiers going over the top. But they're rare compared to the number of people that were involved in the action. And maybe there's no such thing as a good war, but World War II really was fought to stop two immense, insane governments. Uh, you know, Hitler's Germany and, and Tojo's Japan. But we're occupying a country that has little or nothing to do with us on any level. Five soldiers, Gibbs, Morlock, Holmes, Michael Wagnon, and Adam Winfield, are accused of murder and aggravated assault, um, along with other charges. All of the soldiers have denied the charges. They face the death penalty or life in prison if convicted. What, if they convict him, why don't they just put him on the other side of a wall, drop some frags on him, and shoot him? And then collect their fingers, and we can, like, put that on the afternoon news. Fingers at seven. The killings came to light in May after the Army began investigating a brutal assault on a soldier who told superiors that members of his unit were smoking hashish. The Army Times reported that members of the unit regularly smoked the drug on duty and sometimes stole it from civilians. The soldier, who was straight out of basic training and has not been named, said he witnessed the smoking of hashish and drinking of smuggled alcohol, but initially did not report it out of loyalty to his comrades. But when he returned from an assignment at an army headquarters and discovered soldiers using the shipping container in which he was billeted to smoke hashish, he reported it. Two days later, members of his platoon, including Gibbs and Morlock, accused him of snitching, gave him a beating, and told him to keep his mouth shut. The soldier reported the beatings and threats to his uh, officers and told investigators that he knew of the kill team. Oh. My. God. Back from the shadows again Out where an engine's your friend where the vegetables are green and you can pee into the stream. Right right yes, up. we're back from the shadows again. Howdy, everybody. I'm the Whispering Squad. And I'm the Lonesome Bee Ticket. And I'm Artie Choke. And we're just a joke. And don't be afraid, little people, because we're just Holy Graham. Great. Yeah, but what about you, partner? What you doing today? Can't be much, Lonesome. Nobody's working. Nobody except us, and I'm <laughs> getting tired of standing here with these geeks gawking at me. Now you keep it sweet, Pete. Listen here, Leaf Ed, I'm gonna <laughs> now, pluck now, your boys. Fighting's out of style. Yeah. Fun's where the fair's at. In the future, that is. You can bet your roots, Toots, it's tons of fun. And technical stimulation. That's right. And there's lots more of me where I come from. In government inflicted simulation. The future can't wait. No yeah. place to hide. Yeah, so climb on a board. We're going inside. We're going back and to the, the shadows, shadows again. again. <laughs> Out where an Indian's your friend Going down, going down Where the vegetables are green And you can pee right into the stream And that's important We're back from the shadow again I was performing with Phil Proctor in Madison, Wisconsin in the mid-70s uh, Sharing the bill with Patti Smith Driving into the venue's parking garage, I was treated to a large graffiti that read, Eat the Rich. I thought it was apt then, and I think it's a whole lot more apt now. The economic cancer that's eating away at our society is the unbelievable and ultimately unbearable income disparity between the rich and everybody else. 
On today's Oz, uh, I'm reading uh, a piece by Timothy Nash in Slate called The Great Divergence. He points out that in 1915, when we were displacing Britain as the richest nation on the planet, our wealthiest 1% accounted for 18% of the nation's income. Today, that figure is an outrageous 24%. The widening of this chasm uh, wasn't spread out over the century. It erupted in the last two decades. And now, here we are, going broke state by state, business by business, household by household, individual by individual, while a small, tight-knit cabal of multimillionaires and multi-multimillionaires take control of the political process. Today, I'm quoting from an article in Bloomberg about how the most politically conservative Supreme Court since the New Deal decided that money, regardless of how much is gathered at one point to do the damage, is free speech, unleashing the ultra-rich super PACs with the jovial, ever-jowly Karl Rove running with the big dogs again. Thank DARPA or Dharma, your choice, for the internet. An Excalibur pulled out of the lake just in time to do battle with this tax-free propaganda juggernaut and Fox's stable of hydra-headed hooligans and altar boy bullies. At some level of their consciousness, the super-rich, along with everybody else, knows that the whole thing is coming apart. The response since the Bush coup light in 2004 has been a pell-mell rush to fascism. Not the black leather and strut fascism of Benito Mussolini. America is developing its own brand with its own icons and its own enemies. But it's fascism nonetheless. The conflation of government, finance, military, and the conclave of Christian ayatollahs appearing in megachurches and mall fronts everywhere. Right now, brand new American fascism is doing just fine because the bulk of the people who can and will eventually do something about it are still in shock. No surprise. It all happened pretty fast, and at the end of an equity bubble that was a soft ride for anybody who had any real estate on them at the time. Boom dot burst. All gone. No bueno. Now we have to pull ourselves together and solve this on our own. We can't wait for big government, Wall Street, the DOD, CIA, and the inerrant to play house with us. Their tools and toys are so big and so expensive that they choose to play only with each other, but with our money. There's nothing immoral, unethical, or unnatural about a 95% tax rate for super wealth, a lifting of the corporate veil, Aren't we an AFPAC to lift veils? A moratorium on all domestic drilling, a decommissioning of all nuclear weapons, and on and on, dear friends. We're not alone. My next blog is about all the hackers, homeboys, Hecates, and heroes waiting in the wings to help get the new New Deal off the ground. This is from John Taplin on his blog. For the almost three years I've been writing a blog, I have held to the belief that the self-important political pundits like Charlie Cook underestimated Barack Obama's political skills. In November of 2007, Charlie Cook was saying the presidency was a tight race between Hillary Clinton and Rudy Giuliani. Today, Cook says the Democrats will lose the House and maybe even the Senate. So Obama has constantly outperformed Cook's opinion of him. Many of you were doubters in late 2007, became believers in late 2008, and are doubters again today. But Obama understands a midterm election is like the opening of a big movie. People only begin paying attention eight weeks out. As each week ticks off, the attention level gets higher. Like any marketing campaign, you don't want the interest level to peak too early. So Barack opened the fall campaign this afternoon in my hometown, Cleveland, my hometown also. Listen to the Listen to this passage, okay? This is Obama speaking. A few weeks ago, the Republican leader of the House came here to Cleveland and offered his party's answer to our economic challenges. Now, it would be one thing if he had admitted his party's mistakes during the eight years that they were in power, if they had gone off for a while and meditated and come back and offered a credible new approach to solving our country's problems. But that's not what happened. There were no new policies for Mr. Boehmer. There were no new ideas. There was just the same philosophy that we had already tried during the decade that <laughs> when they were in power, the same philosophy that led to this mess in the first place. Cut more taxes for millionaires and cut more rules for corporations. 
Instead of coming together like past generations did to build a better country for our children and grandchildren, their argument is that we should let insurance companies go back to denying care for folks who are sick or let credit card companies go back to raising rates without any reason. Instead of setting our sights higher, they're asking us to settle for a status quo of stagnant growth and eroding competitiveness and a shrinking middle class. Cleveland, that is not the America I know. That is not the America we believe in. Big applause. A lot has changed since I came here in those final days of the last election, but what hasn't is the choice facing this country. It's still fear versus hope, the past versus the future. It's still a choice between sliding backward and moving forward. Now we leave the president and go back to Mr. Taplin. This is the choice. If liberals sit home and sulk, the perfect is the enemy of the good, then they are creating a self-fulfilling prophecy, a Republican congressional majority. That would be sliding backwards. Indeed it would. You know, liberals think somehow that uh, every time they're needed, there's going to be this passion that runs through the nation and everybody is going to go to the polls and make it happen. And that if things aren't going well and if they're not being treated properly, they can indeed take their toys and go home. But when they go home, they may find that somebody has foreclosed on their toys. What an interesting show. Got a chance to, to really schmooze, Dave, and to tell some stories to each other. That's it's, always a good thing. I like that. I like, uh, I like hearing uh, your stories, and uh, I have a few myself. So. Yes, yes, you do. And you know, it reminds me, and you know, we're about to tang out. And one of the things that's interesting about the poets in the Tang period in China is that they knew each other, and they went and visited each other all the time. Not so much true in a country this large. Yeah, maybe in, the, in, in Greenwich Village at some point, all the poets knew each other, but it's not what's happening now this was really personal it seems like it's a lot different getting from you know e the east village up to say midtown than it is getting from you know one gorgeous think of those waterfalls and the rivers and the, all those those wonderful chinese paintings of that landscape well i don't know it's new york's kind of vertical in its own way it has its own way so Tang out. Tang out. Here's um, Tufu. I've been reading from five poems on the autumn fields, and this is number four. So we're getting on. In autumn, the sand gleams white. On the far shore, the sunset reddens the mountain ranges. Hidden fish break water. Returning birds battle the winds. The pounding of laundry echoes from each house. The sound of the woodcutter's axe is everywhere. I can do nothing to stop the ministry of Lady Frost. Her white blanket reminds me how far I am from the palaces of younger days. Ah, the palaces of younger days. They all seem like younger days when you come to the end of an hour show. We'll be back uh, tomorrow, of course, to... Get him younger again. Um, I'm your host, Peter Burden, co-host, David Osman. Our co-producer is uh, Bill McIntyre. Um, John Cummings keeps the ones and zeros together and lets us know what's up in the world of the cybernetic. Scott Wilde uh, builds our website and does a beautiful job and makes the social media thing come all alive. We've got Phil Fountain as the head of the Oz Design Group, who keeps getting funnier and funnier as he goes along. Tom Gedwillow is the, our webmaster. Dave Maloney is our audio engineer. And one of our true wise men, Chaz Glass, keeps all the numbers together. One, two, three. Tomorrow? Yes. Tomorrow.